Thanks, Grant. Well, this morning we get to finish something that we uh, started last Sunday. We get to examine the final pieces of our order of salvation. We've been going through the book of Romans. We've come to chapter 10 and we've talked about how is it that people get saved. That's a really important thing for us as Christians to understand, both for our assurance of salvation, but also so that we can accurately and correctly deliver the gospel to others. So we looked last week at a very simple, there we go, very simple list that I put on the screen. And I, I put this up, I said, look, Paul's had a lot to say in the book of Romans about these two things, the doctrine of election and the doctrine of justification. So what comes in between? And we looked at this list and we looked at six things, election, the gospel call, that's the universal call, the gospel that goes to the ends of the earth, the inward call, which is God drawing the heart, as in John chapter 6, and the impartation of spiritual life. Then we looked at regeneration, the heart coming alive, what we call being born again. And then we looked at what faith is. And lastly, justification, where God actually declares a sinner to be righteous in his sight. Now, we're going to drill down on a couple of those things this morning related to the passage we're going to look at. So grab your Bibles. If you're not there already, let's turn to Romans chapter 10. We're going to bite off just two more verses this morning, verses 14 and 15, but I want to go back and start back up at verse 9 so that we can get the context and the flow. Remember my concern last Sunday was this. In chapter 9, Paul laid out this, this dense doctrine related to God's sovereignty and salvation, and then we come to chapter 10, and it seems now he's emphasizing the human responsibility, the human response to the gospel, and I said, I don't want any of us to be confused by that. How do these two things fit together? So we're going to see today as we look in particular at two of those things on the order of salvation. So let's begin reading in verse 9 and we'll read down through verse 15. Verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Isn't that good news? For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now, it's important as you read that to see that the priority there is on the heart. I mean, that's just the Christian faith. We see the priority on the heart, the inner response to the gospel that then leads to the confession on the outside. Remember, confession or profession of one's faith on the outside without a changed heart, without a changed life is ultimately meaningless, isn't it? It's just words. And so the priority here is, first of all, on the heart. Verse 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Now, that's the NAS version. I like some of the others. It says, will not be put to shame. And that's a reference to the judgment seat. Those who believe in him at the time of the judgment will not be put to shame. Verse 12. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. What riches? Oh, nothing much. Just his mercy and his grace. Just eternal life. That's all. Not much, right? Uh, this great inheritance that we have, it's amazing, right? The riches that he lavishes upon his children is absolutely amazing. And then we have verse 13 For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, that verse serves as the bridge to our passage for this morning. And the important Greek word there, the verb there for call, epikaleo, in the Greek means to call upon or to cry out to someone. Very important verb to understand. And here's what we learn from what Paul's saying here. Receiving salvation from the Lord involves us calling upon his name or crying out to him in desperation. 
crying out to him in our greatest need, knowing that only he is the remedy for the problem that we have. And that is that we need our sins to be forgiven. Amen? He alone can save us from that. So when you examine the Old Testament root of that statement, now this is interesting. We read that as whoever will call the name of the Lord to be saved. Okay, good. Well, where does that come from? Well, if you look at that statement in the second chapter of Joel, those of you who've studied the minor prophets, you know how serious Joel is, right? This is uh, in Joel chapter 2. The prophet is speaking of the very cataclysmic events that are going to take place on the great and awful day of the Lord. And so people are going to cry out in that day. And they're going to cry out in absolute despair. They're going to want to die because of the desperate situation that they're in. All of these, cat- the, 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 the moon turned to blood and, and all kinds of cosmic signs. It's a really desperate time. And they're going to cry out to be rescued from this incredible wrath that's coming. And that's the reference that Paul is making here in Romans chapter 10. We tend to think of salvation, we're like, well, yeah, it's, it's nothing more than just accepting Jesus into our heart, right? Or, yay, we get heaven. But it's so much more than that. What Paul is trying to get at here is this is literally deliverance from wrath, from deliverance from the fires of hell. And, and yes, that ought to inform our desire to reach the lost. At least part of our motivation ought to be the fact that we understand that the people all around us each and every day are facing that very thing, the wrath of God. They are facing the fires of hell. They are lost and they are perishing. So the goal for us is to help others see the danger of the situation that they're in. Because they are. Because nobody's promised tomorrow, right? So right now, if God's wrath is, is hanging over them, they are in a dangerous situation. And so we want to help them see their need to desperately call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. So let's keep going. Verses 14 and 15 now. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him who they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Now, what we see here, what Paul's doing, this is known as the theological chain. He's connecting a series of steps together, one connected to the other. And you might recall, back when we were in chapter 8 of Romans, there was another really important theological chain. It came in verse, eight, uh, verse 28 of chapter 8. Um, and there he connected, in fact, I'm going to click here. He connected three parts of our order of salvation. And you can see those in the screen in white and the underline. Remember, Romans 8, 28, those whom he predestined... That's a reference to election. He also called. That's the inward call of God. And those whom he called, he what? He justified. Reformed scholars rightly point out that these three things, election, calling, and justification, are completed by God, completely separate and apart from any secondary participation by human beings. In other words, God alone elects. God alone calls or draws the sinner to himself. And, of course, God alone justifies. But that's going to change slightly now with what we read in Romans chapter 10. In verses 14 and 15, what we just read, we see a reference to two other steps here. And these are the two we're going to focus on this morning. Steps B and E in the order of salvation. First, that gospel call. And second, the human response to that gospel call, what we call faith. Now, as I say that, don't get me wrong. Those two steps are also accomplished by God. We have to understand that. Remember, we talk about salvation being a monergistic work. It's God from beginning to end. But with the gospel call and with faith, we see secondary causes involved. Who are the secondary causes? Us. Correct? Are we awake out there? Okay, good. 
The gospel call, the going out to the ends of the earth and preaching the gospel. Faith responses, what we've all done if we've come to save, saving faith in Jesus Christ. So these two steps are accomplished by God. He is the primary cause of both of them, but they involve a secondary cause. It's God working through human beings to bring about the results that he decreed in eternity past. Remember, we've talked about the decree. God has laid out before the foundations of the world all things are going to come to pass. Amen, right? But within time and space, we become secondary causes in this process. Now, remember last week we defined faith, so we've got to be really careful here. I know not all of you were, were with us last Sunday, but we carefully define this because we want to make sure that we understand exactly what it is. Don't make the mistake of thinking that faith is something like, well, I prayed a prayer at one time when I was 12 years old, and then I moved on with my life. Or I was once at an evangelistic conference or some big stadium and I raised my hand at an invitation or I walked an aisle. Don't make the mistake of thinking that's faith. Now, that may be a part of your faith story, but faith is so much more than that. True saving faith involves three things. We covered it last Sunday. Knowledge, belief, and trust. And when you see the biblical writers talk about this word believe in the Greek, the word that they use there, the verb that they use implies all of those things. It's not just simply an intellectual assent. So three things. We become aware of a set of essential facts about the gospel. That's knowledge, right? We acquire those essential facts and we say, good, we've accumulated the knowledge that we need to make a saving faith response. Secondly, we become absolutely convinced that that set of facts is true. And that's where we begin to believe. And then lastly, we put no hope in ourselves and we put all of our hope in Christ. He is the author and perfecter of our faith and we walk moment by moment in that hope. This is what we call trust, right? Do you remember the illustration I used last Sunday about the rickety bridge? We come to his rickety bridge and it's over this thousand foot gorge and we look at it and we say, okay, I'm gonna acquire enough facts to where I can, I can uh, Maybe, maybe walk out on that bridge so I, I look at all the knots and the way it's tied and secured and all that. And then over time, I, I psych myself up and I go, you know what? I believe that, 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 that bridge can actually hold me. I'm convinced it can hold me. Have I, have I gotten a saving faith yet? Not yet. Not until I do what? Walk across the bridge. Okay, so that's the third part. That's trust. That's what it means to really trust. Now, what we've seen in these verses from 5 to 15 in, in chapter 10 is that the whole being of a person is involved at this point of faith or conversion. Belief in the heart, a deep conviction of the will, and also Paul talks about a verbal proclamation, doesn't he? He says it's in the heart and it's in the mouth as well. In other words, there's a deep, settled conviction inside, inside that has you just have no choice but to express it on the outside. You want to shout to the rooftops, Jesus is Lord. Right? And that's why we love, we love going to see baptisms, right? We get to see new converts go into the waters of baptism and come up shouting, Jesus is Lord. And that was a really important part of the early church's confession. That was the one thing that would always be declared at baptism. Jesus is Lord. So faith is a necessary step in the process of salvation. And I say that clearly because in all of our, as Reformed folks... In all of our, 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 our belief and trust in God's sovereignty over salvation, we have to remember that faith is a necessary step in that process. True? Paul clearly emphasizes here the fact that each person has to personally respond. They must personally call upon the Lord in order to be saved. Now, that's not enough just to hear with our physical ears. 
It's not enough just to be in a church because a lot of people walk into buildings, right? It's not enough just to read some some random theology on the internet. There's got to be a personal trust response for true saving faith. And so here's the thing for those of us who have made that response. It's our goal as followers of Jesus Christ trying to live out the Great Commission. It's our goal to bring people to that place of response, to help them see their desperate situation, to see their need so that they would cry out to God, call upon his name, and be saved. So that's really our job, just to be faithful, to help people move to that place of decision. Now, remember, for anyone to come to that place of saving faith, the other steps that you see on that screen have to have taken place. We covered this last Sunday. Remember, the nature of any unbeliever is really twofold. They're spiritually dead, and they're in bondage to sin. They're in slavery, and they cannot change their nature apart from a work of God. God has got to do a work of inward calling and regeneration for any believer to respond to the gospel. And they're never going to want to change. We talked about that last week, right? Their highest inclination or desire at any given time is never going to be God, the unbeliever. He's never going to wake up one day and go, gee, I'm going to completely die to myself and submit my life to God. No unbeliever does that. It's not in his nature, nor is it a part of his inclination. So, They cannot change their nature. They never will want to. And this passage that we just read in Romans 10 doesn't change that fact. Remember, we can't just isolate chapter 9 and focus only on sovereignty, nor can we isolate chapter 10 and only focus on man's response. The two have to be brought together into one. And so here's the key for us. Because we can't know what God is doing behind the scenes, because we can't know who's chosen and who's not chosen, what do we do? We carry out step B, the gospel call, and we, we testify and we plead with people to be saved as if their salvation depends on us. That's really an important thing. We know that it depends on God, but we have to go through this process of the gospel call as if it depends on us. Now, you might say to that, but why, Jeff? God's sovereign. Why don't you just have some bonbons and sit on the couch? God will get it done, Right? And the the way I answer that is look again at the passage we just read. There's three things in that passage in Romans 10 that tells us we cannot just sit on the couch. That we have to go carry out God's will. Number one, because the lost cannot call on the Lord if they don't believe in him. That's verse 14. The lost cannot call on the name of the Lord if they don't first believe. Well, how are they going to believe? If they're going to believe, there has to be a presentation of the gospel. Who gets to present the gospel? us. What what a privilege. We get to join in the very decree of God established before the foundation of the world to present the gospel to lost sinners. Have you stopped and thought about that? What a privilege that is. As you all know, this is a huge emphasis here at Oak Hill. If there's one thing that we can say about every member of Oak Hill, it's that we know the gospel. We make sure of it, that we can articulate the gospel, that in any given situation, we can clearly state what's going on and how people are saved. If the lost are going to believe, they've got to hear the full story. That means starting with God, right, as creator and judge, and then taking us to to the fall and the corruption of man so that we understand the bad news before we get to the good news, right? That's really important. First God, then the fall. We got all this bad news. What's the good news? God sent forth his son into the world, the redeemer, the savior, right? It was a rescue mission of Christ. And of course, that has to include both the cross and the resurrection. 
And then finally, we shared the opportunity that we now have to take this amazing story of redemption and grab hold of it for ourselves, to appropriate that by faith alone, to reject anything in us, to repent of our sins and to say, it's nothing according to me, nothing according to any goodness or merit in me, but it's Christ alone. We've got to be able to share that story with lost sinners. So one of the glories of the Christian faith is that it's grounded in real history. It's grounded in objective truth. Guys, it's also incredibly rational and not hard to explain once you learn the basics of it. So we, all we have to do is be faithful with that message. He's given us the message. He empowers us to go out and share. All we have to do is say, yes, Lord, send me and put our hands up, right? That's it. You know, God really doesn't ask that much of his children. Have you thought about that before? He really does. It's, his yoke is light. He says, I'll give you the words. Just have the desire. Just be faithful to do what I've asked you to do. So that's the first reason we can't sit on the couch. Here's the second reason. Because the lost can't believe in him if they don't hear it from an actual person. And that person may be you. They're not going to believe in him if they don't hear the word proclaimed by somebody. Paul says this, how will they hear without a preacher? And believe it or not, and this always blows my, my mind when I stop and think about it, that you and I are the vital link between Christ and people who are perishing. Does that terrify you? <laughs> I mean, it, it does in my, because I know my own self, right? And you know your own heart, but we are the vital connection. Aren't you glad that it's God who works in us to accomplish his will? And he doesn't just leave it up to our so-called free will, which is a misnomer. Boy, you know, if those people don't kill, hopefully in their free will, they'll decide to go out there and talk to people. And if not, God's up there going, I don't know what I'm going to do because I'm counting on them and their free will. And what if they decide not? What if they just decide to sit on the couch? I mean, that's silly, isn't it? When you begin to think about the ramifications of this free will or this man-centered gospel, it gets absurd over time. As if God's got to really hope that we just pull it together on our own and decide in our own free will to go out and do this. It's not the way God does it. So how will they hear without a preacher? We have a sacred duty to share the good news of salvation. Having received God's grace, how can we not? How can we keep it to ourselves? So our obligation to share the gospel is rooted in a couple things. In a grateful heart. Knowing that apart from Christ, we would be lost. We would be perishing. But secondly, it's rooted in love. It's love for lost people. And guys, if you haven't cultivated a love for lost people, this is something you need to pray about because they're everywhere. They're not our enemy. Did you know this? We fight culture wars and we sometimes see them as our enemies. They're not. They're our harvest field. We've got to cultivate that, that love for people out there in our harvest field. We have to remember that once we too were children of wrath, just as they are now, and were it not for God's grace, we would be lost. We would be without hope in this world. So even as we acknowledge God's sovereignty and salvation, we have to face this important truth. Unless lost people hear the gospel, they will perish. The Bible's clear on that. Now I want to press you on something really important here. I know that there's at least one person in this room this morning who's saying, well, look, it says a preacher, and I'm no preacher. So let the professionals do it. <laughs> right? I'm just, a, 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 just your average church attender. So I get to slip out of this. Anybody want to admit that? No, you don't have to. Understand, this is an obligation for all of us. I know it says preacher there. And I know you want to maybe try to slip it out. The Greek word translated there, keruso, simply means a herald. 
Somebody who heralds news. Somebody who proclaims news. That's all of us. And yeah, it's true that the word carries authority. But here's the thing. The authority to share the message isn't in the person sharing the message, is it? The authority comes from the one behind the message. The one who's the subject of the message. That's where the authority comes from. So hear me on this. When it comes to the Great Commission, you are a preacher. Congratulations. Who wants to be up next Sunday? You're a preacher, a proclaimer of the good news. So the lost need to hear the message, to believe and be saved, and that means there has to be a proclaimer of truth. And then finally, the third reason we can't sit on the couch is the lost won't hear the gospel unless someone sends the proclaimer. Look at verse 15. How will they preach unless they are sent? So behind every proclaimer is one who sends him or her out. Now, what does that mean exactly? Who does the sending? Well, once again, we have a case of primary cause and secondary cause. God is the primary cause of every person that goes out, of every believer who goes out to share the message. I don't care if it's a professional missionary or you at the water cooler at work. God is the one who is behind that sharing of the gospel. But we are the secondary causes that God puts to work to get this done. Again, missionary organizations, parachurch ministries, evangelists, churches, and most importantly, plain old Christians like us. And the principle for the sending, we find this in Luke 10. You know this passage. Here's what Jesus says. It says uh, in uh, Luke 10, verse 1. Now after this, the Lord, that's Jesus, appointed 70 others and sent them out in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come And he was saying to them, here's the quote, listen now. Jesus says this, this is important. The harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are what? Are few. Therefore do what? Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So first and foremost is God who sends men and women out into the field That's why evangelism and missionary work always begin with prayer because we begin by asking the Lord to raise us up, to raise up missionaries and evangelists to go out into the field, right, for the task at hand. But I want you to notice a couple things in the language here, and this fits with Romans 9. This is really important. First, it says, Jesus knows that the harvest is plentiful. Well, how does he know that? What if there aren't that many? Jesus knows, right? Because he knows his sheep. He knows exactly who the Father has chosen. He knows exactly who the Father will give him, and none will, lo- none will be lost from his hand, right? So he knows it's plentiful. God foreknows every single person who belongs to him and knows who will come to him. But second, Jesus calls the harvest his harvest. It's his harvest. What does that mean? It means that once again, God knows the full extent to which people will come to him and be saved. His sheep belong to him. His sheep hear his voice. It's his harvest. All he's saying is, go out into my harvest. I know it's plentiful. I know who will be saved. Get out there. Make sense? So we, two key, we see these two key principles side by side. God's sovereignty over the harvest and the responsibility that we have to first of all pray for and then enter into the field for the purpose of harvesting. It's that, so, so we don't have to get all bound up in this whole sovereignty responsibility thing the answer is yes the answer is both primary cause secondary cause but we have an important role to play in this now i want to drill down deeper on this idea how these two principles work together practically speaking how do they coexist how do we how do we work this out in our minds i want to give you a couple of examples from the book of acts 
Because I find people get confused over this. You know, if God's sovereign over salvation, why do we pray for the lost? Why do we do, mi- why do, we do missions at all? If God's completely in control, why do we do missions? And in fact, if you are a self-identified Calvinist or somebody from the Reformed tradition, that's usually the way people attack you. They'll say, oh, you Calvinist, you, you don't believe in prayer. You don't believe in evangelism. Nothing could be further from the truth. That is a pejorative attack that you'll hear out there. And so to that objection, I usually go to the book of Acts because the book of Acts, you're not going to find a better book related to how we do missions and evangelism, right? It really is the perfect place to go to. And when you dig in, you find some really interesting nuggets that bring together these two things. God being sovereign over salvation and yet man having this passion to share the gospel. So grab your Bibles. Let's go to Acts chapter 13. Plus, Acts gives me a chance to put maps on the screen. So if you're new at Oak Hill, I love maps. I'm obsessed with maps, and now I get to put them on the screen. Ha, ha, ha. It's a good day. It was a good day last night when I was working on it. I'm like, oh, it's just fun. I get to put little dots on maps. It's so great. Okay, so there's two really significant things that show up in Acts 13. Number one is the establishment of a very important church in the history of the biblical times, and that's the church at Antioch, Syrian Antioch. Okay, This is effectively going to be the launching point for the gospel into the Greek world. And what makes Antioch really special, it was a place that really broke down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. It was a multicultural missionary church up in Syria where Jew and Gentile leadership at least on the surface, appeared to get together and, and work well together. In fact, this is the first place, Luke says, that, that believers were called Christians. So they, they rejected the Gentile Greek thing and the Jewish thing and Nazarene and all these other names and said, we're one thing, we're Christians, we're Christ followers. And that became their identity in Antioch. So it's a very, very, very special church. The second significant thing in Acts 13 is the commissioning of Paul and Barnabas on his first missionary journey. You might recall that Paul had disappeared after being saved on the Damascus Road. He disappears from the scene for about a dozen years. And now he resurfaces, and for the first time in Acts 13, he's no longer Saul of Tarsus, but he's Paul. And he's going to be commissioned to take the gospel into the Greek world. Now, Acts 13 gives us some insight into the path that he took. So this is where we're going to go mapping. Okay, so you guys all know that the blue dot is always what? Jerusalem, very good. And the red dot is where Syrian Antioch is located. Okay, Syrian Antioch. So from the coast of Syria, they sailed west across the Mediterranean Sea to the island of Cyprus. You see this big island of Cyprus. In fact, boom, yellow triangle. This is some high-tech stuff, right? I mean, come on. See the way it appeared like that? That was fantastic. All right, so they landed in the city of Salamis. I know, you guys are mocking me. It's okay. It's okay. So they landed in Salamis, and, and, and the text says that Paul and Barnabas began to visit all the synagogues all the way across Cyprus until they got to the far western edge, and then they, then they sailed, there we go, they sailed from a place called Paphos on the far west side of Cyprus, and they came to the southern coastline there of Asia Minor, and they landed in a city called Perga, and from there they traveled north to a very important city also named Antioch, just to confuse you. Okay, now that makes sense because remember the, 
the great line of Syrian kings during this period, their names were Antiochus. So you have Antiochs all over the ancient world during this time. So we refer to the red dot as Syrian Antioch and the green dot as Pisidian Antioch because it was located in the district of Pisidia. So they, they arrive in this very important town, this cosmopolitan town, primarily Gentile. And on the Sabbath, Paul stands up in the synagogue and in Acts chapter 13, he preaches this long message that begins in verse 16 and runs to verse 41. You can look at it there in front of you. Now, you guys know that when you see, when you see uh, sermons in, in the text of Scripture, doesn't mean it's, that's the entire sermon, but it's the gist of what was, was being communicated. It's likely that Paul taught for much longer than that. But for sermons, this is a long one from verse 16 to 41. And Paul goes down a very logical a very logical path to try to prove to these Jews that Jesus is the Christ. He starts with important historical information from the Old Testament, right? Find some common ground with the people that you're talking to. So he talks about the Exodus, and he talks about the wilderness wanderings, and the conquering of Canaan. He mentions the period of the judges and the period of the kings. And then it's interesting, he finishes his Old Testament lesson with who? With King David. And why is that important? Because from King David, he can launch into what? The lineage of the Savior, the promised Savior. So he goes on to talk then about Jesus, whom God brought to Israel as their Savior. And he speaks of both the cross and the resurrection, and he carefully connects those events to Old Testament Scripture. Very important, right? He's, he's building a case with these Jews. And then he says, look at verse 38. He says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, he's connecting with them intimately, brothers, that through him, or Jesus, forgiveness of sins is what? Proclaimed to you. Oh, have we seen that word? Proclaimed, preached to you. He's doing the very thing that we talked about in Romans 10. Proclaiming the truth. And through him, everyone who believes. There's that same word, believe. Knowledge, right? Belief, trust. Through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Now that's important, right? We've been seeing that throughout the book of Romans. The law of Moses cannot save you. It can only reveal sin to you. Very, very important. And as they went out, Luke tells us that many people were excited by this message that Paul brought to the synagogue. Many were following him and they were saying, hey, come back next week and talk some more about it. And we pick up the story at verse 44. A week has passed. It says, the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. Now, you can imagine what's happened in this city between the two Sabbaths, right? You got, you got six days to get things done. So the community itself was buzzing. This gospel that Paul had preached was no doubt circulating. I picture Paul and Barnabas canvassing neighborhoods, right? They're, they're talking to people. They're preaching. They're teaching. And the whole city is sort of in a buzz about this whole thing. And the folks are amped up to hear more about this message about Jesus. Look at verse 45. So they all gather at the synagogue, and when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with what? Jealousy, and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul, and they were, can you imagine this? They were blaspheming. Now, why is this a predictable result? Because the first time Jesus preached in the synagogue, uh, Paul uh, preached in the synagogue, it was a relatively quiet affair, wasn't it? It was a Jew preaching to Jews, and I'm sure they had time to contemplate it and think about it, but now... The Gentiles have come out in mass. And if, if there's anything that provokes a Jew, it's a whole big group of unwashed Gentiles. 
okay? And so they're jealous and they're upset about it, so much so that they stubbornly not only object to what Paul's saying, but they begin to blaspheme God. Can you imagine that? And after what was probably a decent amount of time of these people yelling and shouting, Paul and Barnabas said, you know what? Forget it. This is impossible. You guys are obstinate. You're stubborn in your heart. The very thing that Jesus found out about the Jews as well. And they realize that no fruit's going to come from it. And so they turn their back on him. Look at verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Guys, the gospel goes to the Jew first and then the Gentile. They knew that. They knew their responsibility. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, ooh, they, by, by rejecting the message, they judge themselves unworthy. Who's responsible for the rejection? They are. God holds them responsible. Again, sovereignty and responsibility. Man is responsible for his rejection of the gospel. And he says, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Verse 47, for so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Wow, what a rebuke. Paul goes to Isaiah, the prophet, their own prophet, and quotes him and basically says, don't you know your own scripture? The Lord, your God, Yahweh, called you, the Jews, to be a light to the Gentiles, and you have failed. And he brushes off the dust, and he turns to the Gentiles. Look how the Gentiles respond, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing. Yeah, I know, right? It's like one of those, those basketball games where only one side of the gym is cheering. The other side's all, uh, and one side of the gym's just going crazy because they're just, they're, they're knocking it out of the park, right? Man. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Here's the key phrase. Look at this. Underline this. Highlight it. This is the whole point. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. They believed. And the word of the Lord is being spread throughout the whole region. Now, I find it amazing that tucked into a historical narrative like this is the doctrine of election. Remember, this is not Paul the theologian or Peter the theologian, this is Luke the historian, in the middle of a historical narrative, he drops this little nugget and says, oh, by the way, let me tell you exactly who believed among the Gentiles, those who were appointed to eternal life, those who were marked off for salvation, those, the word has the idea of being enrolled in the Lamb's book of life. Every single one of them, not more, not less, that were appointed to eternal life, believed. Wow. Election, right there, right there in an evangelistic missionary setting. Now, as you take a step back from that story, look at Luke's emphasis. It's all on the word of God. Verse 44, 46, 48, 49. Hearing the word, speaking the word, glorifying the word, and spreading the word. It all comes back to that, right? Friends, listen to me on this. When we're doing evangelism, when we're sharing our faith, I don't care if it's the missionary, you know, a foreign mission, or it's here at home, It's the word that provokes. Hear that on that. It's the word that provokes people. Sometimes to the good, people respond to it. They're they're cut to the quick, right? And they respond in faith or to the bad. They get angry and they blaspheme God. But either way, that's your faithful calling. Your Your calling isn't to produce the result. To manipulate the result, your calling is to be faithful with God's word. Now, 
We should still do it in a winsome way, right? We shouldn't be obnoxious about the use of the word. We should do it in a way that's, that's logical, that's well thought out. Paul did that. We should take our time to do that well, but ultimately that's the provoker. That's what's going to make the difference. Not our words, but his word. Amen? And this is the joy of trusting in God's sovereignty in election. As we go out with the gospel message, we can know for sure that God will work through our witness to bring faith to every single person that he's appointed to eternal life. Man, that's good news. And if we're having a bad day, and we just go, I don't feel like sharing my faith, or I do a poor job of it, do we somehow impede the will of God? Of course not. This is the joy. So be excited. I want to see smiles. This is the joy of understanding the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility. It is a joy. Okay, we're going to look at one more example. Turn over to Acts 18. Now we're on Paul's second missionary journey. Some time has passed. And we pick up the story in Acts 18, verse 1. Paul has been in Athens. Remember this great story of him going to Mars Hill and speaking to the Greek philosophers at the Areopagus? And now he's returned to, to, uh, to Corinth. Verse 1 says, After these things... He, Paul, left Athens and he went to Corinth. Ooh, I get to put another map up. Just, just, so, that you know, just so you know where, where Corinth is. It's way over there, the yellow dot. So now we got the full spectrum here of the places that Paul's going. Verse 2, And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, that's the Roman emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he came to them, and because he was of the same trade... He stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So it's interesting. Paul had been alone in Athens, and now he's alone in Corinth. And, and it's never easy to be alone, especially in a strange city. And so we're going to find out that there's some, there's some fears that Paul begins to develop during this period of time. And it, I know it's, it's weird to think of Paul being afraid, but we're going to find out that he actually was here in Corinth. But he's able to locate this really gracious husband and wife team and stay with them. This is, this is biblical hospitality in action, isn't it? Stay with us. In fact, do work with us and we'll, we'll support your mission. This is how Christians operate. Verse 5. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So this is cool. Paul's support team arrives. Yay team, right? We need that because it's hard to be alone. And that gives him a chance now to put his tents down and, and, and to preach full time. Verse 6. But when they, the Jews, resisted and blasphemed, we've heard this before, right? He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. For now on I will go to the Gentiles. Right? Same old story. Same thing. When he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue, and Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all of his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So Paul's beginning to see progress here. I, I love sort of the, I don't, I don't know if, if this is trash talk, but he, he's like, they rejected me at the synagogue, I'll go next door. <laughs> Boom, I'll set things up right here, and I'll continue to preach. You can't stop me, I'll just talk to the Gentiles right next door. That makes me laugh, I don't know why. Uh, so so we're, we're, having, we're having progress here, 
And Paul's able to find this place to, to operate from, and people are coming to faith. But here's the thing. We find out in the next few verses that there's some real fear going on. There was something sinister about the way the Jews were operating in Corinth, which caused Paul to be afraid. How do we know that? Look at verses 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer. What does that mean? God knows Paul's afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent. Go on. So again, we tend to think of Paul as superhuman. He wasn't. He was a guy. He was a man. He had fears. He's even at this point considering, I think what this implies is pulling back on his preaching, maybe leaving. I don't know. But God says, no, no, no. Keep, keep speaking. Don't be silent. He says, for I'm with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you. Here's the key phrase. Underline it. Highlight it. For I have many people in this city. Many people. So God reassures Paul. You have no reason to fear. I'm with you. I will protect you. And these are the words that every evangelist wants to hear from the mouth of God. I have many people in this city. No longer was Paul afraid. No longer was Paul going to quit or walk away. Now, if you, were, if you wanted to, to really bury a Calvinist here, you'd say, well, okay, um, God's sovereign. God has many in the city. Paul could just get up and go because God's going to take care of getting those people saved. Right? Wrong. Paul hears that, and because he understands the sovereignty of God's salvation, he says, oh, good, I'll put down roots. I'll stay here for 18 months because God has many people in this city. And my job is to call people out of the harvest and into the kingdom, called the elect. He says he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So here's how we know that Paul was encouraged by the doctrine of election. He puts down roots, and he stays. And this becomes a new tactic in Paul's life. The next place he goes to, Ephesus, he stays for two years. He changed his way of thinking because he better understood the doctrine of election. He became more and more assured that God marks people out for salvation, and because of that, I'm going to have success. I'll put down roots, and I'll teach and preach until I bring in every person that God has chosen, everybody who's appointed to eternal life. Amen? So this is what we need to understand as we look at Romans 9 and Romans 10 together. Sovereignty, get this now, is an encouragement to evangelism. Sovereignty is an encouragement to prayer. Here's a key principle. I'll put it on the screen. The belief that God wills something is a powerful reason for us to use every means available to bring about his will. Let me say it again. The belief that God wills something, like the salvation of a person, is a powerful reason for us to use every means available to bring about his will, to cooperate with the very thing that God has decreed, to use every means available to us as human beings in time and space to bring about his will. It's never a reason for us to simply fold our hands and say, well, God will do it. I don't have to do anything. Never a reason. As I said last Sunday, God hasn't just ordained the end results of things. He's ordained, ordained how we get there, the means to those ends. And when it comes to calling his elect into the kingdom, his means is you and I proclaiming the gospel and using people like us to accomplish his will. So it's not incompatible, incompatible with election for us to do everything in our power to persuade sinners. In fact, that's what we're called to do, to, to beseech them, to even beg them Paul says, beg them as ambassadors of Christ to be reconciled 
to God. It's that plea that God has ordained as the most common and ordinary way that he calls his children into the kingdom. By the way, isn't this also true in prayer? Do we not pray according to God's sovereignty? Actually, do we not pray believing that God is completely sovereign? Imagine prayer if you just believe everything is according to free will. What would you pray about? Have you thought about this? If God's not in control of the future, or if man has the free will to choose or reject an offer of salvation, it seems pretty silly for us to ask God to save people. Because if his hands are tied by our own free will, it'd be better use of our time if we just petitioned ourselves to get up off the couch and go save somebody. But nobody does that. Not even hardcore free willies. They don't. They pray to God. I know you like that term. They pray to God too. But they should be leaving God out of it. If God can only go so far, but his hands are tied by man's free will, well then don't waste your time praying to God for people to be saved. Get up and go save people. True? I mean, I'm just trying to use logic here. But of course, no rational Christian does that. We beseech the Lord that he would work in the hearts of people. And to me, that seems like an acknowledgement that we're trusting that God is the decisive factor in salvation. Amen? Good. So, I want to wrap up our time this morning by, by looking at this very last phrase that we see in verse 15. We're back to Romans 10. By the way, is this making salvation seem really complex? It is. Do I know how I liken it to? And some of, I know we have a couple guys in our audience who at one time worked for Water and Power, so they know what I'm talking about when I say this. It's like flipping on a light switch. We go, flick, and boom, it's so easy. Right? Do you know how complex it was for that light switch to work? All the things that had to be working behind the scenes so that you can just walk up and go flick. It's complex. All the substations and the transformers, and they can tell you all about it. The dam that was built to hold back the water and the poles and the wires and the underground stuff. All that stuff is working together so that you can go flick. And it's the same thing with salvation to some extent, right? We, we in time and space, we believe, but what has gone into that process all the way back to before time began, all the way to, you know, the, the fall of man and the virgin birth of Christ and the cross and the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit. All these things took place, but it just seems like a quick flick in time, doesn't it? It's complex. It's okay that it's complex, by the way. It's okay. So look at verse 15. Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Now, this is another Old Testament reference. Have you seen how many times Paul does this? Isaiah 52 And if you look there at that quote in Isaiah 52, you're going to find that the good news that he's talking about is is, uh, the good news coming to the exiles, that their time of exile is ending, and the Jews are going to be able to come back to the promised land. And so Paul uses that as a foreshadowing. He's like almost saying, look, that was amazing that the Jews got to come back to the promised land, but there's something far greater coming, right? A spiritual restoration, a forgiveness of sins that's found uh, in Christ on the cross, but for a moment, I want you to f- picture what beautiful feet look like. What are beautiful feet? How do we define beautiful feet in our culture? Soft feet, right? Right? A, a lot of lotion, right? Really soft, nicely manicured. Everything looks nice and pretty. What if I told you that's not God's view of beautiful feet? 
that God's view is feet that are dirty and worn and leathery and even scarred for many, many miles of hard work in kingdom service. What God loves are soiled and bloody feet, the feet of people that bring good news to lost people, men and women laboring. Even this morning, as we sit here this morning in the comfort of this room, there are people all over this world in remote locations under incredible hardship, and their feet are bloody and they're soiled, but they wouldn't have it any other way because they're bringing the good news of the gospel to people who are perishing. This is, a, this is an important verse that Paul puts at the end of this section here to sort of straighten out our thinking on this, to really see the bigger picture. In fact, it's actually it's more, than good, it's more than just feet. The, the people who have served the kingdom of God for centuries now, whose bodies have been broken because of the ministry, bodies fallen apart. How many, how many of the great scholars of the past who worked and preached five, six times a week, they, they just died young. Their, their bodies gave out. They had dirty feet. They had broken bodies, bad backs. But it was all in service of the kingdom. I read a story this week about a woman who was a medical missionary in India. And her son, her son wrote the story of her. She passed away in her 90s. But when she hit 70, he said she, got, she took out every mirror in the house. She said, man, the ministry has aged me beyond what I can even imagine. I, I, I don't even want to look anymore. <laughs> so she took out every mirror, and for 20 years of her life, she lived without having to look at her image. And the fact is, it just didn't matter to her anymore. Because all she cared about was people. All she cared about was healing people in a hospital in India and seeing them come to embrace the gospel. All that mattered was serving God's people for God's glory and that relentless service that she employed, it aged her a great deal. But when she died, thousands of people came out from the surrounding villages to love her, even in her death. And when they, when they buried her, they buried a beautiful woman, a woman they saw as beautiful, and a woman that God saw as beautiful. See, there's, in God's eyes, there are precious people out there that need to be reached, and he calls on precious people to reach them with the good news of the gospel. And I want to say this this morning. It's not always easy or safe to do so. You guys know the great faith chapter, Hebrews 11, tells the story of, of God's greatest servants, and it says they experienced mockings and scourgings and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. This is the best of God's servants who experience these things. And then there's this great phrase in Hebrews eleven thirty eight, men of whom the world was not worthy. Men of whom the world was not worthy. So on this Reformation Sunday, guys, we remember many of the reformers were exactly that, men of whom the world was not worthy, ridiculed and threatened and harassed and arrested, some tortured and executed, but they had beautiful feet, bringing beautiful news to people. And so let this be sort of a soft warning for those of us who are in our church family. I know who you are. You guys are young preachers. You're excited. Going into seminary, Bible college, all that stuff. The ministry is not always easy or clean or glorious. Take a second look at it. Don't be naive. The glory is not yours to claim, and it will scar you. 
but you'll have beautiful feet, bringing beautiful news to people that are precious to God. What a welcome and beautiful thing it is to think that God sent a particular person to share the gospel with you. Don't we, don't we always remember the person who first told you about Jesus? Do you know the story? Could you tell the story? Do you have a testimony? Do you know that person? Have you been in touch with that person to say thank you? We always remember who had those beautiful feet that came to us with the good news of the gospel. They will always be precious to us. They're precious to God. Now here's the challenge. Does anybody say that about you? Let me close with some challenging questions for you to consider. How are you living out this truth? about sharing the gospel in the days that you have on the earth. How will they hear without one who proclaims, Paul asks. Are there ways that you're, that you're actively and intentionally taking responsibility for the call to have beautiful feet and to go out and share the gospel? Or are you counting on others to go in your place? Again, are you saying, oh, there's missionaries for that, there's professionals for that? Have you grown apathetic towards the lost around you? Maybe that's the thing that I'm most concerned with. This always, when we talk about a, a conservative Bible teaching church, this is obviously one of those things that, that can seep in if we're not careful, if we don't constantly stir each other up. Have you grown apathetic about lost people in your life? Are you just too comfortable about the idea of seeing people around you perishing? Do you see lost people in this culture as beyond hope? Do you view them as the enemy rather than your harvest field? These are hard questions. But what if I stood up here today and I said, folks, God told me he has many in Santa Clarita. How would that change your life today? God has many in Santa Clarita. Would you get up and go? Can I challenge you to start praying about this more often? If it's something you haven't prayed about in the past, that you'd start praying about it. Maybe increase it if you have in the past, but to begin to pray that God would give you a heart of evangelism, a heart for lost people, and courage and strength to go out and do something about it. Pray about it, right? Pray, beseech the Lord of the harvest, it says. To regularly pray for not only the lost, but to pray for your own heart for the lost. And for God to show you opportunities. You wake up in the morning and say, Lord, show me opportunities. Give me opportunities to enter into that. Would you consider being a part of the next outreach event that we do here at Oak Hill with Esperanza or some other way? Would you consider going on our missions trip to Romania next year? Just a couple of examples, practical things that you can get involved in. Folks, salvation is not a simple thing. We've seen the order on the screen, but know this. This is so good. God is sovereign and he's always at work. He is right now bringing his decree to pass within time and space. And all he asks of us is to be willing, to have open hands, to be like Isaiah who just said, Lord, send me. I'm willing. And to be ready when that call comes. May we be faithful to that voice here at Oak Hill, continually not turning inward as a body and just focusing on ourselves and nothing more than maturing ourselves, but as we do that, looking outside the walls of this place and having a heart for the lost. Amen? Amen. Bow your heads, will you?